0: And it's you know it's it's funny because you know despite where politics may enter and there's different perspectives on how much we should be reporting on these things or not you know as well as i do that at the end of the day the markets and the dollars are what <laughs> what dictate what we ultimately do right so leave it to the big money particularly the institutional asset managers who are being asked by their investors, like the big pension funds and sovereign wealth funds and the like, you know, like, like uh, CalPERS, Calsters, California State Teachers Pension, those guys who've got billions of dollars, you know, their boards are requiring knowing what you're doing with their money. And that includes how you're investing that money as it relates to the environment, as well as with social and governance related things.
1: Welcome to Banking on Disruption. I'm Fred Kodena. This episode, I'm so excited to be bringing you my friend, David Dalpaz. I worked with Dave way back during my Cloud Sherpa days and then at Accenture, where he and I were great partners in developing industry-specific solutions and taking them to market. David is still working in the Salesforce world and has turned his attention to sustainability and helping his clients track their sustainability goals and impact. As you're considering what goal, what your goals might be for 2024, I think you'll find our conversation insightful. After the interview and our Quick Takes Roundtable, Josh, Eric, and I discuss a cool new, more humanistic AI chat tool, along with a new trend of employers eliminating the requirement for a college degree, in many cases for some jobs. While you're listening to this podcast, why not take a moment to follow us on LinkedIn at the Banking on Disruption podcast, and on Instagram at, at @bankingondisruption. Disruption. Now sit back and strap in because our show is coming to you right now. And welcome back. This episode, we are joined by my good friend, David Dalpaz. David has worked in and with the financial services industry for the last 27 years, both in the industry directly and in consulting and in product development for software companies. His focus over the last 20 years has been on web-based technologies, particularly CRM, SaaS platforms, but have also included niche applications for wealth and asset management, retail, and commercial banking, insurance, credit card, payments, and human resources. For the last 10 years, David has focused on the Salesforce ecosystem, where he has over 25 enterprise engagements under his belt, most recently with the Big Four consultancy. By following industry and market trends, Dave has been able to develop, promote, and sell new products, solutions, and accelerators on the Salesforce platform, including offerings that optimize wealth advisors' ability to manage their books of business, address fiduciary standards for retirement assets, improve intermediary wholesalers and institutional asset manager sales effectiveness, address European carbon emissions regulations, and elevate overall Salesforce adoption through gamification, micro learning, and change management strategies, among others. Dave's a busy guy. Most recently, Dave has implemented carbon accounting solutions for several public corporations to help them calculate their carbon footprint. And he also serves on the board of directors for a nonprofit focused on water conservation education to students in grades K through 12 globally. Perhaps the fact that has me the most jealous is that Dave comes to us today from Clearwater Beach, where he gets to wake up
0: practically every morning. Dave, welcome to the show. <laughs> Fred, good to see you. Good to hear you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm super
1: excited that you're here. You know, we've we've had a lot of conversations over the last few years. You know, for the for the audience's benefit, Dave and I used to work together at Cloud Sherpa's and then at Accenture for a while. And our paths diverged from there and, and we've just never been able to, to light it up to work together again. But we we keep in contact and I've been super interested over the last couple of years in your, I don't want to say departure, but your, your focus or your, you're discovering a niche around environment and sustainability, specifically in financial services. And I know there's a lot of interesting things happening. I, I feel like there's been a lot of I don't want to say groundswell or, 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 you know, a little bit of a push for this to be a bigger issue for financial services. So I thought this would be a great conversation topic for our audience. And, and maybe that's a good place to start. You know, uh, when, when you and I used to work together back at, at Sherpas, you know, you were ahead of the curve with the Department of Labor, fiduciary rule changes, and and we worked together to, to bring a solution to market and sold it all up and down. It was great it seems a little bit like you're ahead of the curve again with sustainability. So what's your take on how financial institutions are interpreting the need to track their carbon footprint? Or, or are they actually, or, or kind of where, where are they on this trend generally?
0: Yeah, it, you know, it's funny you mentioned the recent trends and things like that. If you can't avoid hearing, you know, you pick up the newspaper, if you still get newspapers, watch on TV. Do you? <laughs> I do.
1: I probably shouldn't. It's probably not, it's probably not good for the carbon footprint. I get a Wall Street Journal every morning.
0: I I just, I like to sit there and read it. I do too. As long as you put it in the recycle bin, I think you're good. I think you're fine. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. It it usually ends up in my fire pit. Does it? Yeah. Well, that works too. Yeah, it does too. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we're, we're down here on the front lines, you know, we see firsthand, we just, you know, survived Hurricane Idalia. And I have to say, you know, you can't avoid recognizing that the climate is, is changing dramatically. So it's clear that companies, banks, financial institutions at large are, are all going to be impacted if they aren't already by, by climate change in general. So, you know, you mentioned the DOL rule, Department of Labor rule. Yeah, you're, you're spot on. You know, there's proposed rules out there with the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, that are going to be going into effect in the next year or so. They're still in a proposed state, but much like the DOL rule, everyone's going to be scrambling to to get you know their reporting in place to meet those requirements. So, I mean, it's requ- it's hey, it's an opportunity for guys like you and me, right? Definitely. <laughs> but there's it, it's complicated and so there's 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 a lot of things that financial institutions and surrounding companies are going to need to take into consideration. So, and it's not just the SEC, you know, there's there's Europe with their CSRD regulations, you know. So if you're a US company with a presence in Europe, you're going to have to comply. And their regulations are even broader, you know, spanning all of ESG. You know, it, it's just one column of information that you need to provide related to the environment. And even that is, is, is going to be pretty robust
1: in and of itself. No, totally. I would say totally. You, you mentioned CSRD and and I, I've heard a lot of other, you know, alphabet soup of acronyms, GHG, other things. Do you mind just like breaking down maybe a few and, and for the, those of the people in the audience I'll drop them in the show notes so you'll have them. But I think, Dave, if you could give us a, a a quick guidebook to what some of these acronyms mean, that would be fantastic.
0: Oh, sure, yeah, and you know these are evolving all the time as new new rules and regulations come forth. The greenhouse gas protocol, abbreviated G- GHG, is they're really the ones who who defined really how we should be tracking carbon emissions. So when you hear about you know, tracking scopes one, two, and three emissions—they're—they're they're the guys who who did it, and it was a large consortium, and it's all based on the uh, you know the Paris Agreement. You know, so you've heard of the Paris Agreement, where countries have come together and said, "Hey, we're gonna we got to make sure that we contain this problem so that global temperatures don't rise 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels." So, given this last summer, I think we're already there. I was going to say, where where
1: are we now? Do you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, actually, they you know they said the 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 mean temperature this past year was at that, so they're trying to get it to remain at or below one point five degrees by twenty thirty. So you know it, it it's accelerating, it's a, and therefore becoming more urgent with that. So so that's the greenhouse gas protocol. I mentioned the SEC. Nobody can forget who they are. There's the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-related Financial Disclosures, and CDP, which is which is the Carbon Disclosure Project. So those things are around, you know, doing the reporting around carbon emissions, so that your investors and the public, the public can actually understand, you know, how you're contributing and mitigating your impact on the climate. The CDP is interesting because, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, a questionnaire that you fill out, it's pretty standardized, and it's, it's to produce a pretty common report that you can compare apples to apples, you know, two companies in the same sector to see how they're doing. Some other ones, you know, the Science-Based Targets Initiative, you know, which is actually based on science and what you're going to do. Yeah, there's something. So, <laughs> so a lot of companies are actually using science-based targets that gives more credibility to the reporting and the actions they're taking to mitigate their, uh, their emissions. So those are just a few. No, that that's great. That's really helpful. You started off obviously, and, and I I think I
1: let in with it, you know, relating some of these targets, uh, and some of these regulations, you know, back to the, the DOL fiduciary rules. But, you know, there's also a a market-based reason why wealth firms want to act in a fiduciary manner, are there market-based initiatives that you're seeing for financial institutions to be more cognizant of their carbon, you know, footprint of
0: their of the of where they are on these issues? Oh, big time. Big time. And it's you know, it's it's funny because, you know, despite where politics may enter and there's different perspectives on how much we should be reporting on these things or not, you know as well as I do that at the end of the day. The markets and the dollars are what, <laughs> what dictate what we ultimately do, right? So leave it to the big money, particularly the institutional asset managers who are being asked by their investors, like the big pension funds and sovereign wealth funds and the like, you know, like, like uh, CalPERS, Calsters, California State Teachers Pension, those guys who've got billions of dollars, you know, their boards are requiring knowing what you're doing with their money and that includes how you're investing that money as it relates to the environment as well as with social and governance related things. But if you look at it across financial services, I mean wealth managers, they're they're being asked for products by their investors that you know are carbon neutral. you know, my my portfolio alone with my financial advisor, I said to my financial advisor, I want everything focused on an ESG portfolio, and surprisingly, the return has actually been pretty darn good. Actually, beating the market in some instances, which is is a good reason to do it, right? That's one area. That well,
1: I mean, it, it's 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 nice where you don't have to take a haircut just for doing for doing good, if you will. You know, based on what I've seen in the market, I, I sure in the hell hope. Nvidia and, and Apple are are carbon positive because I'd want them
0: in my portfolio after the last year. Big time. Yeah, Apple's a good one. They they're building enormous solar farms in Texas, actually. You know, because their their whole objective is to basically every iPhone out there, they're trying to offset all the energy that's coming out of those phones that are in your hand. Another good example is around like Coca-Cola. Coca-cola has been spending the last 10 years trying to put all the water that they take out back into the ecosystem because we know you know drought is a big thing right now but you know it, it spans across all of these things I, I mentioned the wealth managers the asset managers you know banks they got to think about lending you know they're being asked about that what impact does your lending have on the environment and lenders in general you know like auto loans, you know the regulations are. Want to know what impact you're having based on the loans you're giving for people to buy cars, and then probably the the most apparent impact to financial services is insurance. Insurance companies need to understand the risks that climate has on on their actuarial activities because it's a risk game, right? So Florida, we're particularly acutely aware of it with insurance companies leaving here because of risk related to climate, flooding in particular. So it's across the board.
1: Yeah, and, and we're seeing it all over. You know, flooding, general hurricane risk, wildfires in California, other places. I mean, it, it is, these extreme weather events are definitely driving changes in how insurance companies are measuring risk and, and where they're willing to take risk. And I'm curious, to, on, on the banking side, like, are you seeing banks that are you know adding you know whether it's on their on their consumer loans for autos or on some of their their commercial you know CRE or, or CNI lending that are adding like a carbon component to their underwriting and, and is that having a direct impact on on rate or approval or is that still a little bit ahead of the curve
0: what I'm seeing based on the conversations that I've been having is that it it, it still is early days. It's early days until regulation really requires them to do these things, or if there's a financial benefit to doing it, you know, they're going to be taking their time to do it. But yeah, there's players out there that are, in fact, folding in the environmental elements into their products, and they're taking advantage of it from a promotional perspective, because there's people out there who do want to borrow, invest, and the like, in line with ensuring that the climate is not being negatively impacted. So it, it's going on, but it's, we're early days, early days, in my opinion.
1: I think I've seen the same sort of thing. Not that I pay as, as nearly close attention to it as you do. I think there's definitely a lot to come. One of the things that's always been confusing to me, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners as well, is what does it mean to track one's carbon footprint? You know, you can you walk kind of through... You know, the sophisticated players, I mean, I'm sure you can think a little bit about, like, your own stuff. And, like, I, I, I think when we, we were in the green room before we started recording, I told you I just flew in to, uh, to Norfolk for some meetings over the next couple of days, right? Like, that's a carbon imprint and, and, you know, offices and whatever. But I'm sure it's got to be a lot more sophisticated than that. So how does that
0: carbon footprint tracking work? Sure. Well, hopefully you were on a plane that actually uses sustainable fuel. So <laughs> that's a big I, thing. I was, I, was on, I was on
1: American. You tell me. <laughs> uh,
0: eh, maybe. They, I know there's another airlines that's really big into it, and it is becoming a really big thing. So, yeah, maybe you were being sustainable, Fred. I don't know. <laughs> it could be. So, yeah, I mentioned earlier how the greenhouse gas protocol really defined how you track emissions. It really boils down to three major categories, the, and they call them scopes. Scope one, two, and three in its simplest form. Think of scope one as your direct emissions that from doing business that you're producing. When you have your buildings, like in a bank's situation, they have they have large buildings, they have branches and things like that. So the emissions from heating and cooling the spaces in those buildings are things for properties they own is gonna be covered under scope one. When they buy electricity, that's where scope two comes into play. So they go out and purchase, you know, their electricity for their buildings from, you know, Duke Energy or whomever the supplier is. There are calculations around emissions for that. That's a big contributor. And then the third one, scope three has more to do with supply chain, both up and down the supply chain. And there's 15 different categories that fall under that, roughly half that are upstream and the other half that are downstream. So those are the big things. And then there's other areas that are important, which include both waste and water. How much waste are you producing? You know, how much recycling are you doing to offset that waste? Those types of activities. And water, water is a real big one. You know, that's becoming more and more important. We already mentioned flooding, that side of it. The other side of it is no water. I think you're going to see a lot of different organizations becoming acutely aware of the watershed in which they produce and operate because water aquifers are are getting depleted. And this is water that took millions of years to actually get produced and they're they're sucking them dry. So if you're, you know, you're a company that's dependent upon water for your products, then that's a huge financial risk exposure to you, you know, so that's a big one. As it relates to financial institutions, your the investments that financial institutions are making is really where Scope 3 comes into play more than anything. So you'll hear Scope 3 Category 15 or Cat 15, and that's for financed emissions. So that's really to cover any emissions that were not already covered under Scopes 1 and 2. So again, going back to, you know, you're a bank and you've got those buildings, you got those branches, and a big contributor, call centers, huge call centers, or data centers. That's another big one. I've seen companies divest themselves of data centers because of the emissions impact it was having on their carbon footprint. Those things and ba- basically divest divests themselves and and let somebody like.
1: Amazon or, or Microsoft like pick up the Slack and, and theoretically they've got the scale to deal with the carbon issue, you know, better than a than a bank could or another company with a, a local data center.
0: Yeah, and they're they're doing carbon offsets and things like that to to reduce their footprint as well. Which I mean you still gotta account for that, right? You're still consuming those services and things like that, but at least now it fits into a different category. So
1: I mean it seems to me though, like you know, just like People or, you know, companies invest themselves of data centers because, you know, they want to let, you know, Microsoft or, or Amazon or whomever, you know, handle, you know, a lot of the security, right? You know, or they, you know, or like the operations or like it, it's super easy for, you know, AWS to, to spin up a new cluster when you need it, you know, a lot more efficiently than, than you can. Another kind of efficiency play is, they're going to have already established, you know, hopefully green electricity options, you know, that's going to reduce the the impact buying offsets and then just the general efficiencies of, of being in the data center business and not in the lending business or in the you know what what have you business insurance business etc they'll they'll be more efficient anyway. I think I think that's a little bit of what I'm hearing.
0: Yeah, and you really touched on a good strategy that companies are using across the board, right? They have those kinds of things in their tool chest to, to work with. One is, I mentioned the supply chain. Why not look at your supply chain and choose those companies that are doing things more efficiently? They themselves have a smaller footprint. If they have a smaller footprint, that's a smaller scope three measure for you in the end. So that's a big bonus. You can go out and buy, like you said, you can, you can buy energy that is renewable, right? You don't have to have gas and oil produced energy. So it's out there. It's out there. And, and more and more things are coming out. You're seeing more marketplaces where you can do those kinds of purchases as well, which is great. So,
1: yeah. That is great. So, so we, both, we both spent time in the Salesforce ecosystem. So for, the, for banks and, and institutions that are using Salesforce, that would be measured under scope three. Yeah, whatever Salesforce's carbon impact is, and and I guess and I've never tried this. You can reach out to Salesforce, and similar to getting other compliance reports, they will give you a a carbon impact report, and then you can factor it into your calculation. You know, I've got X number of seats, and that translates into X amount of carbon, you know, impact.
0: That's exactly right. Which, by the way, is a great segue. Into how you do this, <laughs> right? <laughs> you planned that, didn't you? Right. <laughs> hey,
1: yeah, let's see. This is exactly where I was going to go next. So, so how do we measure the rest of these things?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you mentioned going to Salesforce. A lot of companies. Salesforce is one of the first companies, actually, that has publicly they've published these reports. There's other big other big companies that are following suit. So, it's easy to get to those to that data. Data is the biggest problem. If you're a financial institution and you have investments, we talked about scope three and how financed emissions falls under that, you're going to need to be able to go out to all of those different companies that you've invested in and get their data on their scope one and scope two emissions primarily. Scope three, if it's material to their business, but that really one and two is what you want to get for your investments in Apple, say. Because then what you're going to do is you're going to be calculating your ownership of that emissions. Because you as an investor, be it a shareholder you know, or a major investor, bonds, whatever it may be, you have percentage ownership. And it's really simple math. It's, here's my total carbon footprint for Apple multiplied by my percentage ownership. At the end of the day, that's fundamentally it. So you need to do that for every single one of your investments. Now, We know a lot of companies haven't produced this yet. They haven't even thought about producing data on their carbon footprint. So the greenhouse gas protocol, knowing that that would be the case, came up with a way for companies, banks, and the like to actually figure out what the footprint is by using what's called, without getting too geeky here, I'm just going to say it's the average data method. So it's basically saying, based on the revenue of that company, they're going to use a multiplier in order to come up with an equivalent carbon footprint for that. So,
1: so and and maybe I, I I've not been digging into this like you have, and so I was just listening to the explanation, and I'm a little curious on how does one or or how does the the industry writ large avoid double counting? So I'm thinking to myself, okay, self, you know, we talked about Apple, Apple is probably, I don't know, you probably know, doing this type of reporting for itself. So it it knows its scope one, scope two, scope three impact. And then say me, say I was a 10% owner in, in Apple. I'm not. If I were, I love you. You wouldn't be talking audience, right now. <laughs> I wouldn't be talking to you right now. I'd be, I'd be sitting on a yacht somewhere. But let's say I own 10% of Apple and I wanted to, through my investment fund, report on my scope one scope two scope three when i get to scope three i'm taking whatever apple says and impact and, and taking 10 percent for myself but if somebody's aggregating this stuff they're then going to take apple's report and my report and now we've got 110 percent of apple like how how does how does the industry avoid like double counting when you're looking at that scope three especially around an investment portfolio
0: yeah, no, and that's, that's, that's fair. And that is one of the big questions that a lot of companies raise is, you know, I don't want to double count. And I think the the protocol, I think that's part of the reason why the protocol is focused on scopes one and two more than anything. And that it specifically says that, hey, unless the, the investment you're making has significant scope three, like material scope three emissions that maybe eclipse their scope one and two, you really probably don't need to use the scope three. So that's kind of part, maybe part of their answer to that question. But it boils down to the ownership, right? And it even boils down to just fundamentally what scope three is. So let's, you know, break it down a more kind of a more simple example of you produce pencils. You make pencils, the mine that produces the graphite or whatever they're putting in pencils nowadays that you um that you purchase, you're not buying all of them. You don't own the entire footprint for that graphite mill. You only need to know the portion of the products that you, you know, that you're buying. So it is proportional. So that kind of mitigates part of it. Is you're not taking on the full burden. You're taking on your portion of the burden. So and it is, it is your burden. It really is. So if you want to be very accurate and thorough of the emissions footprint.
1: No, I I, I agree. But what's the harm in double
0: counting? Yeah. No,
1: there's, there's no – I guess there's no real harm in double counting other than wanting to get to a true – as more and more people, companies are adopting this type of reporting, getting to an accurate measure. I think the, the more cognizant everybody can be, the better off we are. I, I've always been a big fan. I – not to get too egg-headed here you – know, I study economics. I was always I was always a big fan of studying you know the cost of externalities and things that are just ne- not generally accounted for in most market-based economics and one of those externalities is is waste whether it's carbon or to your point water waste or solid waste and, and other things and and there's a very real cost and I would think as capitalists people would want to, force those costs back on the market participants that caused them, rather than just have them go out to the public, or even worse, the ether, to, for, for nobody to address, right? Like that's that's just part of, of accounting for the true the true cost of doing business. And I, and I think that's fair.
0: Yeah. Well, and think of the byproduct of that. Think of the opportunity that's now going to arise as this becomes more and more formalized and important right? Like who would have said that, you know, geez, even a year ago, anybody would be talking about generative AI. And now people are tripping over each other like it's the most important thing on the planet, which, hey, all things considered, maybe it is. I was hoping that this was
1: going to be the one podcast this year where we did talk about generative AI, we can edit that out, right? It. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, it's staying in. It's staying in. Oh man, sorry, <laughs> dude. Sorry. <laughs> but but it, it is. It's an oppor- It's going to be an opportunity. There's going to be a wealth of companies who are going to need to be providing new products and services to mitigate. So I, I think it's. I think it's awesome. You know, there's a lot of profit to be made here across the board.
1: There definitely is. And, and and you know, for 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 good for good social benefit as well. I'm curious, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the, the various scopes. How and you said, you know, one of the issues is data. I'm sure another issue is, you know, how to track. And if I know if I know the corporate world like I know the corporate world, probably somebody just started with an Excel spreadsheet. But there's got to be a much better way. You you uh, recently implemented, and I think you've done a few of these now. Carbon tracking for a large Fortune 500 company. What's the technology that goes behind that? How how are those being implemented?
0: Yeah. So there are specialty software solutions on the market today around this new field called climate tech. You and I have spent our past decade on in this whole thing called fintech. Well. We got a new tech on the on the block now. And this is what's gonna fill that fill that void. And it's gonna be by companies like Persephone, Sphera, Watershed, who have a suite of products that are doing a number of things. First and foremost, they're doing the carbon accounting. They're helping you to collect the data that you need to measure your emissions, the raw data, and they're doing the calc and then they're producing the reports and analytics that you need. That's part of it. And others like and and then of course we got to mention Salesforce, right? Salesforce Net Zero Cloud is out there as well. So, those are kind of the big names that are out there today. Who knows in a year or two who's going to be the players? It could shift cuz it is still pretty early days in that regard, but they are they're doing the reporting but the other stuff that they're doing, the more sophisticated tools, besides also encompassing carbon emissions, they're doing water and waste tor- tracking as well. But they're doing what-if analysis. They're doing forecasting to say, you know, if my strategy is to be net zero by 2030, and let me explain that for, for folks that aren't aware. When a company says we want to be net zero, it means that they're not going to be contributing you know, they're not going to be a, a positive contributor to carbon emissions. How they get there could be a variety of ways, but but that's something a lot of companies are doing is making that declaration. And you need to be able to kind of look and see what are all the levers that you can move in order to get you there. So like if I focus, if I'm a bank and I could, I may want to look at all of my different investments and seeing maybe which sectors are doing the most harm to my carbon footprint that I'm reporting out, you can move that slider in that regard. And that's what that what-if analysis is going to give them. And then it'll allow you, even with connection to Internet of Things, to use sensors to track how you're actually doing in that regard. So so that stuff is is here today. It's, it's still relatively in its infancy, but it's there. Some I would say that the conversations that I've had First of all, it's around the software, what it does. But the second conversation is getting the data in there. And it's all about integrations. I mean, that's what you and I do, is how can we get these big sources of data ported into this system to do the calculation without people doing the spreadsheets, which you know as well as I do, as you said it, some of the scariest things I've ever seen is major corporations running businesses based on their spreadsheets. Like, really? (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's still happening. So how do we get it? How do we automate it? You know, how can we do things like porting in all of your electric bills? You know, so if you're a commercial real estate company and you've got thousands of buildings in your portfolio, that's a lot of electric bills every month. How can we get data like that pumped into the system, calculate the carbon footprint based on that so I don't have to do anything? That's that's really where you know, the best tools are nowadays. There's an electric bill consolidator called Arcadia, formerly Urgenet, and that's one of the top two integrations that they want to do. After they've at least taken maybe their historic data, getting their spreadsheets, poured it in, just migrate that data in, get your emissions factors, which, you know, help you to calculate c- your carbon. Just get that set up so I'm ready for next year. Then it's, okay, let's do the integrations. So that's key.
1: no. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. You mentioned briefly Salesforce and Net Zero Cloud. I know that this is a second iteration. In fact, I had a sustainability cloud accreditation. I was told like a year ago, nine months ago or something, that's not any good anymore. You know, they threw it out and they said, if you want it to be accredited, you got to go back and get a Net Zero Cloud accreditation. So I think, and I, and I have not done that yet, I, I've not read in on Net Zero Cloud. But I, I assume that means that there's been a pretty big uh, evolution in what the product does.
0: Yeah, yeah, same thing happened to me, Fred. I mean, I was like, come on, I did all that studying. <laughs> Little did I know that the, the, the amount of studying you have to do for the new iteration of what's now called Net Zero Cloud. See, they had to change the name because it was such a dramatic change. It, it is significantly more robust than it was in its 1.0 state. In fact, they put so many resources behind it that they're now the leader. When I mentioned the prior names like Persephone, Sphera, and the like, you know, Forrester has actually positioned them top top right in their new wave quadrant as the leading solution. So it's there. It, you know so in addition to tracking scopes one and two pretty efficiently and easily in a cloud-based environment and scope 3, I think scope 3 was the biggest addition for them with their scope 3 hub. So that whole supply chain with 15 different categories, that's a lot of work and being able to it is it is and being able to track your your purchasing, your sales, all those things in is going to be pretty critical. And so they've done that. And what's interesting is, you know, for this discussion, are talking about financed emissions and the emissions from investments. That scope three hub is what you're probably going to use in order to do that. So that's great stuff. And, and on top of that, they've also put in place a marketplace. So let's say you're doing great this year. You know, you're getting close to your net zero goal, but you're not quite there. You can go to the marketplace and buy those offsets, those carbon offsets to get you to zero. They offer that as well. I would say that a one-stop shop, a a one-stop shop. Absolutely. I think that's their goal. That's what they want to have. That's what they want to be. The thing is, is that, you know, with things like the European standard I talked about earlier, CSRD, they haven't addressed that. And I think that's where companies out there and a number of different partners in the in the ecosystem they're going to have them. They will have developed accelerators that they can just install as packages on top of that environment. So it's so it's a bit easier. You're not doing it from scratch. So so that's that's pretty key. And a lot of these companies are doing it as really table stakes at this point.
1: Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. This is this has been a phenomenal conversation. Really informative for the audience. I'd like it if maybe you could just kind of break things out a little bit and and get to some takeaways. Like if you're, you know, listening to this podcast, you're sitting at a financial institution, a bank, credit union, some other financial institution, and you want to get somewhat ahead of the curve.
0: What's your checklist of what they should be doing right now? Sure. I think first and foremost, you need to assign ownership, much like your human resources, your operations, you have owners of those those areas of your organization. This is big enough where you do need to have someone dedicated to it because it's going to permeate your organization.
1: Is is this a is this a C-level person in your opinion? Is this somewhere else in the organization? For the much larger
0: organizations, yeah, it is. There's a new thing, you know, cuz we're we're coming up with new, new C-level titles, right, all the time. So CSO is the latest the Chief Sustainability Officer. And there's a number of them out there. Again, still early days, but you can find someone and put them into that role who can also be the voice publicly for you around this. They can talk the talk. That's, that's good. You know, I've seen some companies that have taken it very seriously and they're building entire departments around it because they recognize how important it is. A lot of other companies, it may be one or two people at a, at a much lower level but hey it's you need somebody doing it and and that's really step 1 you know i think the next step is is to get help and what i mean by that is with impending if you're you know if you're a public entity and with the impending regulations coming up it's going to be hurry up and get the data together and get get these reports generated and i think out of the gate there are plenty of consultants out there who specialize in carbon accounting that you should get to maybe even generate the, the, the spreadsheets to start with. Do this on a spreadsheet if you want. But ideally, what you want to do is is really get the software. You want to get the software implemented because this isn't going away. And like I mentioned earlier, getting that data in, getting the calculations done can be optimized so that you have integrations in place to do a lot of it for you. I recommend you definitely talk to each of the big players because it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all. I can't tell you, hey, go to Persephone for all things or go to Salesforce for everything because your needs are going to be different, especially based on the extent to which you want to do things, right? to what extent you want to do some some pretty deep robust analysis. That's one end of the spectrum whereas the other end is I just want to meet the need, you know, the immediate need of reporting. So, they're all very eager to talk to you. <laughs> so, talk to them and evaluate based on your specific needs. So, those are those are the top 3. I love it. Assign ownership, get help,
1: get software. I think that one place that people might want to get help especially after this conversation is from you. What's the best way for our audience to connect with you if they have questions or want to follow up?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, hey, I'm on LinkedIn, as with anybody else out in the space. So find me, Dave Delpas. I'm out there. Reach out to me that way. I'd, I'd love to speak to you just to have a chat to find out what you're doing. I'm always learning. There's As with anything, you peel back the onion. It makes you realize there's a lot more to learn. <laughs> so I want to learn from folks as well. And I'd love to have the conversation. So they can do it that way. That's probably the best way to do it.
1: Fantastic. Well, and we'll put your LinkedIn link in the show notes as well, Dave. I appreciate the time. This has been a phenomenal conversation. I think we've just scratched the surface. I think the to your point, the more I hear about this, the more I learn. It's like it's like peeling the onion back. There's there's always kind of the next thing to to look at. But I I think we've wet our listeners' appetite, and and for those that have already. Embarked on a sustainability program, maybe given a couple more things to think about, and those that that haven't quite yet started, uh, maybe uh, it's a good reason to to get that into your twenty twenty four planning. It's it's that season. So,
0: thanks again for the time, and look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah. So we're not going to have cigars and talk further over bourbon or anything like that. Or we are. We're just we're just not going to release that as part of the podcast. I've got the. I've
1: got the Apple uh, family-friendly, no explicit uh, tag on the podcast. A little dark. So
0: okay, that'll that'll be the after-hours conversation. <laughs> that sounds good. That's a different podcast. Awesome, right? Thanks, Brad. <laughs> Great to see you. Take care, you. you too. Bye Bye-bye. bye. Bye-bye.
1: And welcome back. I'm really excited for this week's Quick Takes Roundtable. I know, Eric, last time we were together, you teased a little bit about an AI assistant that you found that was a little bit more human. I can't wait to hear about it.
2: Yeah, it was a, it was a good old cliffhanger. So I'm, I'm glad that I remembered to bring it back up again. So I think the concept of these large language models, you know, being conversational is great, but Until you can actually talk to it and it talks back to you and it's more of a natural conversation, I think some of them, even though ChatGPT with voice is kind of going in that direction and it might end up taking over. But there's a platform out there called Pi, as in uh, 3.14159, but it actually is personal intelligence, P-I. If you uh, are on iOS, it's not available for Android yet. As of the date of this recording, I do not think... But if you go into your iOS and you search your app store for Pi space AI, it's from a company called Inflection. And one of the co-founders happens to be one of the creators of LinkedIn. And then the other one was one of the gentlemen that came up with DeepMind and sold it to Google. And it's got some pretty nice knowledge power behind it. But Pi goes on your phone, And you essentially press the little telephone and the microphone starts listening and you just ask it a question. And when you're done talking, it recognizes that you're done talking and it comes back to you. And it is a conversation and you can pick different voices. I've got a British gal. Be curious to see how many guys choose female voices and how many females choose male voices. That's a whole nother debate. But when I have the conversation, and I introduced this actually a couple of weeks ago when I was in Madison, Wisconsin for the sales and marketing school for the graduate school of banking. And I did my typical shtick on digital marketing and social media and building awareness for bankers. And then I got into little web three and then finished with artificial intelligence. And Pi was like the finishing the the frosting on the cake, if you will. And I basically pulled her up and started asking questions and it started coming back, essentially interacting with it. So I'm going to just do it real quick and I'm going to turn on Pi and I'm just going to say, you know, I'm recording a podcast with a focus on banking and artificial intelligence. Is there anything that you'd be interested in sharing with the audience? And let's see what she says.
1: (laughs) I'm I'm a little nervous she's going to be better than we would be.
2: Well, we'll we'll see whether that happens or not. <laughs> hey there, I'm actually in the process of recording a podcast right now with a primary target, business owners and maybe bankers. And I'm wondering if you have anything that you would like to say to our esteemed audience. Oh, I feel so
1: honored to be asked. Here's what I'd say. Hey there, business owners and bankers. If you're looking for a way to stay on top of the latest trends and insights in the business world, then a podcast is a great way to do it. It's like having your own personal business consultant in your ear, sharing the latest strategies and tips to help you take your business to the next level. I like it. You you think if we slip her like eight bits,
2: she'll mention our podcast by name? I think so. Maybe I should. Maybe I should, uh, you know, give her the name and say "Banking on Disruption" and see what see what she does. But when I was driving back from Madison, I took the northern route to, so, uh, to southern Michigan, northern Michigan, up through the UP, and I got kind of bored. And so I I fired up Pi and I started having a conversation, and I was asking all sorts of questions. I actually asked it about a podcast that I had listened to that referenced an article on the. Impact AI is having on search engine optimization. And I couldn't remember exactly what article they were referencing in the podcast, but I gave her the name of the podcast and told her what it was that I was interested in. And she looked up the podcast. She found the name of the article as well as the author. She then pulled up that article and gave me a summary of the article while I was driving and we were talking back and forth. And It was absolutely mind-boggling to the extent that if she asks a question and I'm not really interested, because one of the downsides, I would say, of this app is it likes to be really conversational. And sometimes I just want an answer. Like I got on it the other day and I'm like, give me the score of the Chiefs game. Oh, are you a Chiefs fan? Or, you know, how how long have you enjoyed watching the Chiefs? And I really didn't care because I know my wife likes... Travis Kelsey, and I just was curious whether they played, and I don't even think they played this weekend,
1: but it was not. A they game they game did, game. by the way. Yeah. Against um, the Broncos.
2: Against Close the Broncos. Game. So, you know, I asked, well, when do they play? And she said, one o'clock, and I'm asking at 4 p.m., so they already played. So it wasn't totally accurate and helpful, but more often than not, I get into that platform and I ask it questions, and it is a very enjoyable exchange. I know I need to leave a little bit more time for it because it's going to try to engage me in more of a discussion, but it's it's one of those I think predictors or future this is this is what we're likely going to be in for. Eventually Siri and Alexa and Google Voice, you know, they're all going to have that indistinguishable like I feel like I'm talking to a friend.
3: Yeah, instead of talking to an absolute idiot. Honest to God, do you remember? Do you guys remember? Like two weeks ago, I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm real, like real friendly to to my AI." I'm like, "Thank you, please." Right? And then, then Casey and I were on the couch, and and we like to pause shows and be like, "Hey, what? Uh, you know, what actor was blah blah blah?" And like, what other movie? Like we're like, "Oh, who's that guy from?" yeah, what movie? Right? So we'll we'll ask Echo. We say Echo instead of Alexa, but so we'll ask the Echo the question. And then it starts spitting out, you know, land speed records for cheetahs. And we're like, oh. (laughs) And and that happens like two times in a row. Trust me, like I'm not, (laughs) I'm no longer AI friendly at that time. It's definitely got its limitations. Can I share, Eric and and Fred and audience, I downloaded this app right after our last conversation two weeks ago, right? And I just kind of let it sit there. I was just kind of like waiting for it. And I wanted to test it for when I was having a bad day, right? I wanted to test its you know, emotional uh, sensitivity and what the communication- Because that's what was.
2: this is based off of. It's supposed to be a more emotional, empathetic chat bot that, that is there for you as opposed to just answering questions.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So recently I had an occasion to feel annoyed or upset or bothered or whatever. I was, I was frustrated I was like, okay, you can phone a friend or I'm going to talk to Pi for a second. I, I didn't do the voice. and I just typed, you know, I was just texting him. So I texted it, and I'm like, here's the situation. Here's how I'm feeling. And and it totally calmed me down. Like, I'm not joking. Like, it totally. Now, I wasn't pulling my hair out or punching holes in the walls. I don't really get like that. I But I was just feeling bummed, right? And it made me, what it did was it said, enough of the right things in just a few exchanges to make me feel like no I was already doing the right thing and I should just have a little more patience and everything's cool it was ba- it was basically if you called up your friend and was like I'm having a bad day and they're like don't worry about it everything's cool man you're doing good you're doing good but it was m- more robust than that i was shocked at how my emotions changed from interacting with ai because the only type of emotions i've ever Experienced from AI are frustrations like trying to throw my remote control across the room or like something like that because in increasing the frustration, not taking it down a notch, exactly. (laughs) Not with Chat GPT, but with these voice interactive things like Siri or Echo, Amazon, whatever, Alexa. Okay, so I was shocked and I absolutely and I'm now recommending it to anybody who sometimes you know maybe a college student is having a bad day. They're in the middle of class. They're feeling frustrated. They can just type a couple of things in there and maybe feel a little bit better very quickly and then get back on track. So I'm a big fan. I don't know how often I'll use it or when I'll use it, but I've got it and I will be using it. So I appreciate the introduction to it there, Eric.
2: Well, and when you download it, it gives you examples of, of different types of conversations you can have. So you can, if you just want to vent, if you want to learn about something, if you want to brainstorm ideas. So it's got a whole welcome screen of things that, you know, it's connected to the Internet. So you can ask it questions and it can look up content in live real time. It has a little bit of a memory. One of the things that I did while I was driving is I said, are you familiar with the role playing game Dungeons and Dragons? And oh, yeah. And then it proceeded to tell me <laughs> about d d but then I said, I would like for you to assume the role of a dungeon master. And I want you to take me on a journey because I'm on a long trip and I'm driving and I, I would like to have you take me on an adventure. And she said, absolutely. And she walked me through picking a character. Yeah, and then, no, You're kidding and then me. I, so you, you played D and D with pie. I played D and D with pie. I'm that That's big of a, so that, is awesome. it, that is so it awesome. It remembered like, you know, I came up uh, against a bear. And the bear wanted to eat me and and I made up a bear sucker that I pulled out of my pocket and I gave it to the bear and he's like, she didn't know what to think. But then she's like, the the sucker and the bear, you know, so then I ended up scratching the bear's belly and he comes along with me. But I would go back every once in a while and say, do you remember the name of the individual that tasked me with my adventure? Do you remember what is it that I'm on a quest to obtain an amulet?
3: What were you, a thief, a wizard? What were you?
2: I was a chaotic, neutral fighter that had a side job of stand-up comedian.
3: Nice. She thought, I like she it. She
2: thought that was wicked funny.
3: I love it. Hey, <laughs> welcome to Banking on Disruption, where we discuss NFL, AI, Dungeons and Dungeons & Dragons. You know, I, <laughs> hey, I'm I'm a big Dungeons &
1: Dragons uh, Proficionado. I I was recently reading where some people have gone up onto like fractional work sites to be like professional dungeon masters. Because one one thing, as an adult human being, it's hard to find, number one, groups of people that want to play. And then when you find people that want to play, somebody that wants to go through all the work of becoming a dungeon master, I think it'd be cool. Uh, forget the forget talk me off the ledge. If Pi would just be the dungeon master for my d d games, that might be good enough.
2: Well, and I'm going to make another... Dungeon Master reference that's going to tie this in that's going to involve Snoop Dogg, but I don't know if you recall reading or seeing the news, but as Meta is working on creating their chattable avatars and working on their AI, they're taking all sorts of celebrities and giving the celebrities personas where you can actually interact with them as experts. And and Snoop Dogg has been identified by Meta as you can have Snoop Dogg be your Dungeon Master. <laughs> I'm not familiar with it yet, But they're they're working on that. And so they've got Mr. Beast and Charlie D'Amelia and a bunch of other celebrities that are out there that have licensed their likeness to meta to turn into different sorts of chat agents, almost like character AI, where you could go in and have a conversation with someone that is a Steve Jobs or you know, and, and interact with them. And so
1: um, Meta, Meta, your your bots are out there listening. the The three of us are available for licensing. It, sure. It'll only cost you eight figures. You know, reach
2: out and,
3: yeah. and we'll talk. We, we're, <laughs> we're totally good with that. You but know, I, think- I had I had Dexter give me directions on my map, something whatever on Apple. like you could pick, like the I can't remember the actor's name, but you know Dexter, in the TV series on Showtime, <laughs> right? And yep. he was. Giving giving us directions on where to go.
2: Isn't he also the serial killer? The what? Isn't Dexter like the serial killer dude too? Uh,
3: Yeah, he's a serial killer.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I'd be really careful where he's taking you.
3: No, but he's he's, (laughs) he's your friendly neighborhood. He's your friendly neighborhood's serial killer. Yeah, I can totally trust where
2: Dexter's taking me. He's not going (laughs) to... Just ignore the plastic sheet and duct tape. That's all good. I think he
3: was one of the good ones. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> good serial killer. I, I guess
2: to, to 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 wrap up my my love affair, if you want to call it that with pie, I think the thing that it it does or it did for the bankers, because after we were done with my class, we all went up to the Fluno Center top level to the study pub and other instructors and other bankers, they were firing up pie and just having a conversation. And I think for those that may be intimidated by AI, you don't know how to prompt, you don't know the right commands to be able to get images out of Dolly or stable diffusion confuses you. Cause it's in D, you know, what is it to not, I was going to say descript what's the D word where everything is in discord. Yeah. You just talk to it. You just ask it a question. And, and the first couple of times I saw people interacting with it, and I'm sure it was the same way with me. You were, you were, being very methodical, like you would have to ask your phone or like your text messaging and you're uttering the periods and the commas. And then after about 10 or 15 minutes, people are just having a conversation with their phone like they would with their friends. And this AI was just keeping up word for word, sentence by sentence, response by response. And there were conversations going on about, you know, this week in baseball. And there were conversations about, Cooking, and there were conversations about you know D D. It just paints a picture of where these services, this AI, is going to become a, a fabric, a, a one of the threads of the fabric of our life. It's going to just be there for us, and it'll be to the point where we probably aren't going to even recognize that it is. But I would suspect we're going to be appreciative. The next
3: generation won't even know. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm curious. I've got a couple of and and I know you're not like the product manager for Pi, but I'm curious, Eric, as the most experienced Pi user and, and Josh as somebody who's used it more than me. Like you mentioned, Eric, like it has a little bit of a memory within a conversation. Does it ever refer back? Like if I if I talked to it last week about the Chiefs game and I come back this next Sunday is it going to say, hey, are you going to watch the Chiefs today? They're playing whoever, whoever. Or is it pretty much like within the conversation and then it forgets?
2: Yeah, I don't know. And we talked in the pre-show about, you know, Chad GPT and Claude. And, and Claude has got a much larger input window, much bigger yep. token capacity to be able to consume content and understand it. I don't know what the token capacity is for Pi. But I will tell you one of the things that just actually made me laugh out loud. I was walking around Petoskey after a meeting I had with a client and I was chatting with it and I was asking it for a question and I came back with a response of bingo. And she proceeded to give me an example of an icebreaker utilizing bingo. And I said, actually, I was just simply responding to your (laughs) comment and affirmation as bingo, like you have it correct. And she came back and said, oh, my apologies. Ha And then like two or three minutes later, I said something and she came back with bingo. And I said, don't think I didn't recognize. What <laughs> I said there. And she's like, yeah, I can't get one by you. And then a couple minutes later, I came back with another example where I said bingo. And she came back and said, oh, stop, you're killing me with the bingos. And so it obviously remembered, or it was really good at faking it, which my grandmother towards the early end of her life was really good at faking it and just picking up nuances, even though she didn't have a foggy clue what the conversation was about. (laughs) She could make it sound like she knew what you were talking about. And so it, but there is a memory, there is some retention there. I've tested it a couple of times just to make sure, but I've also tested it and it's come back. With hallucinations that it dully totally doesn't remember, I said, "You know, what did I give the bear in our Dungeons and Dragons? Oh, I remember you gave it honey, and it really liked it." I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm "Like, nope, you were thinking no of honey, would, but it was a bear <laughs> sucker, which doesn't exist in the world of, you know, predictive transformers because nobody's ever put a bear sucker with a bear. A bear likes honey."
3: Don't be so sure. So, Look, I'll tell you yeah. this: one <laughs> one person that I respect who w- was running a little webinar on AI and how to develop your own persona for communicating or for developing content via ChatGPT. Now, I have not set up a persona, and I write all my stuff originally, but he was sharing how you do it, and he said, "Look, you really need to treat AI like like someone's got who's very smart with a very short-term memory. Think of it uh, almost like they they might have like some Alzheimer's a little bit, like they can be forgetful, you know, they can be forgetful, but if you remind them, it's like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I am back on track now. So it just needs some regular prompts. I think this has been a great topic, man.
1: Yeah. And I was just saying, like one more thing. Like, if you think about it, like I know that like Pi has a chat like layer, like front end on whatever the AI is, but like if any of you have ever built anything like to the chat GPT or the open AI API or Anthropics, it has no memory. Like every time you send a new API call, you have to summarize what happened or it doesn't know what happened. So there's got to be something in the Pi front end that's doing that like that that, that prompt stuffing with the information. Well, they do so, it with
3: conversations in like GPT, right? So you can have a, a conversation and it can remember yes. those things, but an hour later you might need to reference earlier in the conversation.
1: Total, yeah, G, GPT will do it, like the chat interface will. Yeah. But if you're sending messages through the API, you have to redo it every single time.
3: Yeah, it that's like remember. talking to me. I'm like, what were you talking about? <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, well, that's probably a perfect segue to, to switch topic. I mean, Josh, you, you said over an article that I was really fascinated with and, and just ironically, it had a similar conversation with a client earlier today about like how college degrees are almost like the union card these days for white collar jobs. And the the thing you sent over was about how some companies are reducing college degree requirements because college is stupid expensive. And maybe depending on what you got, the degree is not that valuable. I just love to hear more about that.
3: Sure. Yeah. I, I found this really interesting, but I also found it to be, you know, you've got to always, I'm not saying read between the lines, but it's like, there, there was something in there, like, we're going to, you know, be switching over one and a half million jobs in the next three years. It's like, so you're talking about half a percent of the workforce. You know, it was like, it, it sounded, you say a million, it sure sounds like a lot until you realize how many people actually work here in the United States and then spread that over time. And it's like, okay, like, you know, come on, like, this isn't, this isn't going to change overnight, but I'm hoping that it will. Because um, in my experience, there are so many positions and careers like in Salesforce where it, you don't need a computer science degree to be a Salesforce admin, right? You don't need, um, you know, you don't need a college degree in project management to be a project manager. What you need is work experience, okay? And there are some companies, and they they cited in the article that these were sort of older companies that were more in these sort of like bastions of business, like, D.C., New York, Los Angeles, Chicago its like the big ones where there's just more people and hence more competition for the top jobs where they don't believe that that's going to necessarily be the case. But when we're looking at companies like Amazon, like Walmart, right, corporate jobs where there's, they're figuring out like, OK, so we're using this requirement of a, a minimum bachelor's degree to even be considered for a role that can be can be trained right? If someone exhibits the right types of behaviors and enough interest or has the right level of experience. And so I, I'm a big fan of this. I don't think that college degrees are as critical as they used to be. They're still always going to be. I think they're always going to be kind of critical for certain roles, particularly. I I want, I want my, I
1: say, I want my doctor to have a degree, right? I want my structural engineer to have a degree, Yeah. but you know,
3: I also want my doctor to have graduated in the top half of his class or her class, right? Yeah. I, that that too. But I, I'm right in the middle of it right now. I have one child who's, in, he's not a child, he's a young man, Charlie, and he's in college at university of Oregon. He's in his second year and he's studying business and it's great. It's good. It's social. I, I reflect back. I've got another one. We're sending an app. I literally during this show, he's like, here's the link for the common app. And he's going to be applying to his colleges over the next 10 days. So, I'm right in the middle of it. And having gone through sort of a second wave with my second, second son looking at colleges and the cost, it's obnoxious, it's, obnox- it's an obnoxious cost, right? That someone can go to school at you know, University of Florida for $25,000 and get this great degree from a terrific school or they can go to University of Miami, which is a great school, but it's gonna cost you $88,000 if you wanna live there, $88,000. And you think about that, you can go out and get someone $65,000 a year to just follow you around for 40 hours a week and teach you stuff, <laughs> right? Go yeah. consume all this YouTube stuff and then tell me what I need to know, right? Like, there's just, there's just no need for it, right? Or like, I, I actually happen to really appreciate some of the programs that they have in countries like, you know, well, in the UK and in Germany where you're figuring out, and this isn't good for everybody, but you're figuring out and the uh, sort of, a call the school, a, a college or the education, like a college is understanding what, where your gifts are. Right. And so you, you take, for instance, in England, you take, you do your A levels and that determines which schools you can go to. Right. So, okay. You tested really smart for these three subjects. You've been studying those three subjects for the last two years. So you're going to be whatever, computer science, scientist, and you can go to these three schools. Right. I like that because it keeps them really focused. Now we have general education, you know, we spend two years of college or a uh, hundred and seventy thousand dollars for some schools to get this general education. It's like why do I have to take why do I have to take a college algebra when I've already gone through two years of algebra algebra plus plus trig, I can't bit plus trig plus calc. Like, why are they making I mean, me I th- th- do that again? I think I think there's
1: I think there's a lot of reasons, one of which is our lack of standardization in educational standards across high schools. You know, I think one of the things that I have a, a friend of mine, former neighbor that was a, a math professor in college and the amount of preparedness they'd get from students. And it didn't matter if they were from big theaters or small, big schools, private schools, whatever. Sometimes they get somebody that, that was that knew their stuff. And sometimes they get somebody that was so remedial, they had to start with the basics. I don't necessarily blame colleges for that. I blame them for the price tag though. That's not $88,000 worth of of value, right? That that should be much cheaper and the higher level courses the more, you know, advanced stuff should be more
3: expensive. Yeah. And, you know, the schools that cost the most generally have the largest endowments too. So it doesn't really make well, yeah. sense to me financially, right right? Like if 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 we weren't helping our kids go go through college and they were going to one of these private schools and somehow they got financed to do it. Right? and they're coming out with a quarter million dollars of debt or more, quarter million dollars of debt for a degree that might not even kick open some doors. Now, it's going to matter in certain areas. As an example, electrical engineers who focus on machine learning, like there's maybe 10 programs in the country that are like amazing. And if you get one of those degrees from that school and you do well and you can communicate with other people, you're going to walk into a $120,000 job right out the door. Right. So where you go to school matters for that. You know, companies like Google and Apple or Sharp Labs of America, a former client of mine, you know, they're looking for the best of the best from those programs. Yeah, it, it, a degree matters. Totally. Everybody jokes about underwater basket weaving from, you know, University of Vermont or whatever. Like, yeah, there's that going on too. Coming out with a degree in philosophy, you know, <laughs> like, like it's cool, man. Like, I love I love me some philosophy, right? But like are they p- being prepared for the workforce? It's like asking people in high school, are you being prepared for life? Like, do you even know how to write a check? And so we're, the curriculum I think needs to be examined from high school all the way up through bachelor's degrees, but there's so much money, totally. so much money involved. You've got massive unions around that. You've got lots of people who are working for the government. I mean, you think about all the top universities, they're government employees, right? So there's going to be unions involved and and a lot of pressure and a lot of lobbying. So it's, it's going to be tricky. And I think that there's some problems, but I love that we're seeing a shift here. It doesn't have to be like, you don't need a degree, but what do you need instead? Well, one thing that you can do is actually read the article. This was on, (laughs) this was on, I'll just tell people it was on foxnews.com forward slash media forward slash us companies. In fact, if you go and just search eliminate college degrees, box we'll we'll put it probably. we'll put in the show notes okay perfect right so you can check that out but here's what they're recommending if you choose not to go to college which is to gain work experience you must demonstrate that you are learning this information that's critical to the role you're selecting you must be able to demonstrate that the other thing that they need is work experience so you have to find a way to get in at the ground floor and have people give you a shot and then the other thing that they said that's that does make sense to me when someone goes into do college, it's a little bit like a long version of someone who did a marathon. I did one marathon. Casey's done, I don't know how many, she's done done, done a ton of them, but like doing, a, someone says I did a marathon it tells me something about them. It tells me that they're willing to do lots of things that hurt over time for a long period of very glutton for punishment or a goal yeah <laughs> yeah, glutton for punishment but they're goal oriented their goal achieve you know they want to achieve something they know how to set goals, stick to them, follow a plan with little reward at first, very little <laughs> reward at first and break through that barrier to have some success. I don't think college is very dissimilar to that, right? No, I think, I think you're, I think you're spot on.
1: Yeah. No, I think it is. I mean, I think one of the things that's challenging is that we like put a lot of things on college for some people. And you kind of went this way towards the end of what you were saying. It's purely about job training. It's purely about like, I'm going there to go get a career for other people. It's about like personal development. I know a lot of people, you know, we're, we're all at that age where people go back to, to school just to learn and I think all of those things are noble goals. But like, raise your hand if when you went to college or when you were 18 or 19 years old, you knew what you wanted to do, and that's what you're doing right now, right? I don't think any of us would raise our hand to that. And, and we're putting it on these kids that you know, are 18, 19 years old, you know, brain still developing to try to make these decisions you know, to spend a lot of money. And a lot of time to maybe pursue something that they're not ultimately interested in, yeah.
3: I which, which I think is one of the. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. Oh no. Yeah. Go I, ahead. I was an art major, and and that's what my degree is. in. it's just sort of general art. I did fine art and art history and the whole thing. And I'll tell you when I one of the I, I bounced. Between a number of different colleges, and one of the ones that I went to, I really enjoyed it. Was at University of Utah, and they actually had a terrific art department. And one of my teachers, whom I respected quite a bit, quite a well-known artist. A couple of them were well-known artists. In fact, I actually tried selling. I worked at an art gallery when I was eighteen, and I was trying to sell these hundred thousand dollar paintings. Huh. Only to find out halfway through my anatomy for artists course that that teacher was the guy was the artist that I'd been trying to sell. You know. three years So that was pretty cool. But what they told me was pretty, pretty straightforward. They said, look, within five, 10 years, I forget the stat specifically. It's like in within five years, 5% of you will actually be doing some sort of work in art. Everyone with an art degree, you got a one in 20 shot, you're still doing art. And 10 years later, it's like 1%. Okay. So why did I do it? Well, I thought I was going to be an artist, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but what did I learn? Like, what did I gain from that? Well, I'll tell you this. From that general education, from that art education, I was able to find ways to connect with people in my role as a salesperson or as a leader, you know, someone's like, oh, I love that painting by so-and-so and and that's interesting. I stood in front of that in, you know, Amsterdam at the Rijksmuseum, like whatever. So you can, it just helps you become a little bit more worldly and connect with people who are different from you. The other thing that college does is it exposes you to a lot of different opportunities, which you know, you can get by, by scrolling, you're not going to get it by looking at YouTube shorts. Okay. Like that's not going to happen. It's just not. So for those reasons, I still think if you can afford it and if you have the time and you have the inclination and you're suited to education in that model, it's great, but there's nothing wrong with not doing it. Totally.
2: Yeah. I, I also think that, and we're still not even a year into Chad GPT. When you think about what's happened and where we're at but when that first was released there were a lot of entities organizations industries whatever you want to call it that were very leery and scared of and and education was one of them because now still are still are are, yeah gonna jump in and have chat gpt or Claude or whoever write my term paper for me and you know the the ability for the institution the educational environment to be able to adapt to okay if this is truly a technology that is never going to go away it's never going to be as bad as it is right now and it's always going to be a part i get it if you are an engineer you probably need to be able to run calculations without a calculator but for everybody else on the planet to run you through any sort of math without a calculator is ridiculous because you're always going to have a calculator you're, you're, you're always going to have a computer. You're always going to have a mobile device. You're always going to have artificial intelligence. You're always going to have language bottles. And doesn't mean that you don't need to understand the basics of good sentence structure. And, you know, but is it really as important that somebody sit down and write it themselves? Or is the evolution going to be, I can leverage the tools that are at my disposal to create something that's even better. I can't be lazy and phone it in and expect what was produced previously is good enough. Now, all of a sudden the bar gets raised and I have to be more sophisticated. I have to be able to use these tools. And there was that theory that, Oh, the prompt engineer is going to be the next job that you need to go get your education as a prompt engineer.
3: We're all going to be engineers, you know, it's 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 a life skill. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's a life skill. You have to, it's like, you have to know how to use a mobile device. You have to know how to use, Eric, you know, Eric, quick question,
3: quick question, buddy. Do you know how to use the internet? Because you're hired, right? Like that's what the it's like right is now. Superhighway. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, you, so- you say that jokingly. I mean, you, you
1: see a lot of resumes, Josh. I don't see nearly as many as you do. How I many of you can see that say like Microsoft Excel as a skill or they list off the browsers Office, they could use. Office 365 like, okay Firefox. That's, yeah. I, I can also walk. I also know how to breathe. Yeah. you know, I, Are you really putting that on a resume? Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. Well, look, a lot but of I that, think- oh, people don't refresh their resumes. So that, that was commonplace and people needed to know. And most businesses are operating in Word, but most colleges and, and high schools are operating in Mac. So it was one of those things that you needed to kind of tell them like, yeah, I also know this stuff, you know?
2: Yeah. But I think, Having some extracurricular understanding beyond, you know, and if you talk, if you listen to Gary Vee and any of the stuff that he puts out, he is very vocal about you don't need college, you just need to hustle and figure it out. And, and there are so many opportunities. If you really have the drive, you want to demonstrate proficiency and commitment. You know, it's like running the marathon. I think a lot of going to school demonstrates your ability to slog through some of the unnecessary, but you're building a routine, you're demonstrating dedication, but it also helps a lot of people figure stuff out because you might not know and flipping through shorts and Instagrams and TikToks isn't likely going to be the best career advice for you. But I think there's going (laughs) to need to be that element of understanding how those things work and blend that with the quote, traditional education environment because that hybrid version is likely where society is evolving to. And you're going to have to have both of those skills. It can't just be a college degree. But it also is going to be really hard just to say, you know, I'm an expert on TikTok. And unless you want to <laughs> be an influencer, and that's going to be your gravy train. That,
1: which, that's, that's the gravy train I'm waiting for. Let me tell yeah. you. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like
3: A lot of folks who go to college, almost anybody can go to college, whether it's community, or Harvard, like a lot of people, you know, you can go, most people can find a way if there's a will. And even if you've kind of tanked on certain, you know, on high school, hopefully you didn't, but if you did, like, there's still a way, there's still a path forward for you to get a traditional college degree in college education. Right. But you're still going to wind up at the end of the day. Once, once everyone's done. And I, I want to say, what is it? A third of people, I can't remember what the stat is. Is it a, about a third of people have a college degree? Is that the number? Something around that. Yeah, I think that's close. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll fact check I, that. I think it's somewhere there. I can ask
2: Pi real quick if you want me to.
3: What's that? <laughs> yeah. Ask Pi. So I guess my quick story I applied for a job at Robert Half right around 1998, 1999. I'd been selling cars and I wanted to be a recruiter. And someone said, Oh, you'd be a really good recruiter. I went and applied and I didn't get the job. This was with Robert Half Technology back in 98, 99. And I didn't have my degree yet. I'd bounced around so much. My credits just didn't align. You know, I wrapped it up a little while later. I practically had to do nothing because they gave me a bunch of credits for being a hot air balloon pilot, which was dope. So I got like 12 awesome. credits for being a flight instructor and pilot, which was awesome. But and, and then that's it. I had my degree and now I could apply. And could I have done the job really well without that degree? You bet. Of course I could. It's not like there was some page describing me and all of my degrees and diplomas and things like that. I didn't have that. I didn't need it. I would have been a badass recruiter four years before I ever became one had they had they brought me in. Eventually I did apply and I got a job and eventually became a vice president, right? So but nothing changed with me having, you know, 10 credits short and me having a degree in in my knowledge, my capability and ability. So there's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of, you know, silly rules, but usually what they're using college degrees for, for non-specific roles. In other words, like, oh, you want to be a salesman? Do you have a college degree, right? Because people aren't getting degrees in salesmanship. They just want to know that you did something, that you completed something, and they've got 50 resumes and they want to narrow it down to 15. That's it. And so you're going to spend $260,000 to to make the cut. Like that's the deal or a hundred grand if you are smart about it. Anyway, I thought this was kind of a neat article. I'm glad we got to talk about it today.
2: Yeah. I am too. Eric, did did Pi have I, a result? Pi did. I put you on mute because I figured she would want to talk and, and I didn't want to break. <laughs> she there. did. But, uh, <laughs> I sent a text message to her and she said, based on the latest data, about 37.7% of Americans aged 25 and older have a college degree or higher. Means a majority of Americans do not have a college degree. However, it's worth noting the percentage of Americans with a college degree has been steadily increasing over time, which is a good sign for overall educational attainment of the population. People with college degrees tend to have a higher earning potential than those without a degree. So while a college degree is not a requirement for success, it can certainly be a valuable asset. Thank yeah. you,
3: Pi. And I'll tell yeah, you. So I, about, about a third. You nailed it, Josh. A third. Nailed it. I do take issue with Gary V and people like Gary Vee who are like, oh, you just need to hustle. Like I got a friend very successful. He built a 200-person ad agency. And he's like, I smoked weed the whole time. I don't think it's a big deal. Or like, I didn't finish my degree. It's fine. It's like, yeah, you're what's called an outlier. Like most people without degrees, don't build yeah. businesses of two hundred. Stop thinking you're the 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 mean here because you're not. And I find <laughs> I find so much arrogance in that, like true arrogance. And Gary V is neat guy. He's done a lot of stuff. I don't I don't I don't want to hang out with the guy. Honestly, I find he just I don't like him. I don't like his vibe sometimes. He's very smart, and I appreciate that. And I love his hustle because he's got a ton of it. But I think some of these influencers like Gary and other people like him. Can can really they they gloss over the fact that they are not just the exception, but the so far the exception. They are built with a they they came out of their mom's womb, designed with a certain personality type. Yeah, with a certain. I mean, this well, guy and not was just
2: hard, that, but like also also. Hard.
3: Yeah,
2: oh, go ahead. Well, you selling? I mean, he, he even tells you the story. I mean, it's fun to listen to him. He gets you mo he gets you motivated and pumped up. But you know, he had a cigar box, you know, with thousands of dollars in cash from selling baseball cards as a kid. I mean it yeah it, it is very it's, much. And how many of us grew up that way? None of us. But it's it's a lot a of things lot that of have to come people? yeah. Yeah. A
1: lot of things that have to come together. You know, he totally. he was in the right moment, right? Like he hit on both the like increase in demand for spirits and expensive My spirits. Library. Like if you if you went back like 30 years ago, nobody was talking about like expensive wines and spirits unless you were like super hoity-toity. Now it's very mainstream. He hit on the advent of social media and the internet and he rode that wave. He had the advantage that it was a family liquor store that he got involved in. He had all the money from baseball cards, right? It's like hustle gets you so far. You got I think you got to have hustle, right? You can't be you know, Eeyore, and expect to knock it out of the park unless yeah. you started out with with eight zeros in, in the bank, right? Yeah. But hustle is not the whole answer. Like, you need to have – other things have to fall in place, right? Gary's There's a smart. lot of people that Look, hustle.
3: Gary's a yeah. genius. He's a genius. Totally. Like, not taking not anything rocking 115 IQ, okay? Like, he's not, right? So he is in the top 1% of intelligent people. And so if you're also in the top 1% of intelligent people – and you come from his background and you're born at the right time in the right location. I mean, it, it, have we all read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell? Great book. Great book, right? And so, you know, we're talking Steve Jobs, Dale Carnegie, you know, we're Bill Gates, Musk. Like we're talking about these people who just were born at the right time. They were in, existed existing in the right location. They had all of these things. And, that, and that's why, you know, oh, they're my hero. Or, okay, well, that's fine. But like, if you weren't born into that, you know, if you weren't born you know, with access because of some friend that you could get into this, you know, University of Washington computer lab and work in the middle of the night, yeah. use these mainframes and develop your coding skills at 16 years of age. Like, guess what? You're not going to be Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. So sorry. Right. You know, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of factors. This has been great. Great conversation, like usual.
1: We got about halfway through what we wanted to talk about today. But I <laughs> think it's been... been a time. It means more for next time. I do want to leave the radio tease. I like that we didn't get to a lot of banking stuff, but next time I definitely want to talk about these CFPB rules that are about to come down. That I think it's going to make it even more important, and Eric to a lot of the stuff you talk about with the linked banker on doing what you can as a bank and a banker to 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 be there for your customers because now it's going to the competition is going to get even more blown open with some of the open banking stuff that's coming. So I definitely want to get to that next time, but in the interim, you know, Josh, I know you and I are going to be at Florida dream and we can talk about that in a minute, but Eric, if, uh, if our uh, listeners are looking to find you in the wild, are you, uh, at any conference or anything in the next couple of weeks?
2: So I don't have any conferences. Um, well, I guess if you, uh, if you are a banker in Indiana, I'm going to be heading down there um, in a couple of weeks next week to be part of their marketing forum. I facilitate that. And then I'm going to be popping over to Columbus, Ohio for the CBAO and doing their forum. And that'll be great. And then uh, you mentioned the Link Banker, anybody that's out there. And I think we'll have uh, at least one more time to get together before. But the 9th of November, which is the second Thursday, is our next happy hour. And... Those are always a lot of fun and good conversation that do not get recorded. So a little bit of FOMO going on there, but uh, that was a really good uh, discussion that we had this past uh, this past week on our uh, on our happy hour discussion. So encourage folks to track me down on LinkedIn and be part of that next event.
1: Sweet. Those, those are fantastic conversation. And I'm not just saying that because you let me contribute sometimes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Anytime and, and John- you're welcome to come on stage. <laughs>
3: And Josh, uh, you want to talk about your Florida Dreamin' uh, session? I'm excited for it. Sure, thanks. Yeah, it's going to be around, I think, 10.10 10 on t- next Tuesday morning. Not, this, uh, not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow. And this topic that I'm going to be covering is negotiating skills for Salesforce professionals. So this is a, a skill set that I think everyone in the world should work on and develop. Some people have it quite developed, but everybody can get a little bit better. I believe it's an important topic, not just because people can save money, earn more money, but more importantly, they can really smooth out their communications with people that they're having conflict, you know, a a conflict of decisions on. Does that even conflict of decisions? Like they disagree, right? So you, <laughs> you, can get to an, you can get to an agreement faster when you develop these skill sets. I'm looking forward to running it. It's going to be really exciting. I'm still kind of putting it together. It's one of those things that I love to talk about. I love to share. And I love to teach people, but it's also one that I haven't necessarily said, okay, th- these are the 16 steps, right? So that's been a little bit interesting to put it all together. And uh, I hope that people can show up and learn something really awesome. And hopefully it can uh, inspire them to learn more and potentially change their life. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Fantastic. Well,
1: I, I will be in the audience, even if it's just me. And, and I got the privilege of getting a little bit of a preview of your content over the weekend. And I can tell you, it's, it's going to be you know bang up. So if you're at Florida Dreaming, definitely go to Josh's session. I'm also speaking at Florida Dreaming. My session is on generative AI and leveraging generative AI as an admin or an architect to make better more scalable, more standardized Salesforce solutions. So I know Salesforce architects all like, like to consider themselves artists, but we all know we need to build in a way that's scalable and follows best practices. And I think AI can definitely help because there's such a large volume information on Salesforce and so many products. So if you're to Florida Dreamin, I'd love to see you at my session. Definitely don't miss Josh's session.
3: I will definitely and be at uh, yours. For sure.
1: Well, you'll you'll be the you'll be the only one. Not, get <laughs> out of here. That's not true. But anyway, gentlemen, thank you again. Uh, looking forward to doing this again in two weeks. And in the meantime, uh, safe travels.
3: Thanks, Jess. Awesome. Nice to Thanks, see everybody. Guys.
1: Cheers. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed episode 14 of Banking on Disruption. Don't forget, you can find show notes and a full transcript of the show on our website, BankingOnDisruption.com. New episodes drop every other Thursday, so we'll see you again in two weeks. And in the meantime, don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at, at BankingOnDisruption. Until next time, this is Fred Kadena wishing you success in your digital pursuits.